This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel app. Did you know the app can help you forecast more than just the weather? With allergy tracking and flu risk mapping. So you know when to stay inside and load up on podcasts. As well as air quality and UV indexing. So you know when to get outside, load up on sunscreen and podcast. Forecast more of what you love with the Weather Channel app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and healthcare is personal for me because a few years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, and I went through insurance denials, huge medical bills, and much more. So the experts are here to answer your health insurance and healthcare questions. And also today, we'll be hearing from Jerry Ashton, uh, the co-author of this book, and medical debt, who will be talking about uh, medical debt, uh, why we have it, and what you can do about it. Uh, to start, let's begin with uh, open enrollment, uh, which is no longer open for the year for insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Zoid from Health Sherpa, uh, tell us who can still sign up for insurance and what do they need to do to get it uh, covered? Yeah, so currently we are in the special enrollment period, which means that in order to sign up for insurance, you need to meet either have a qualifying life event or meet certain criteria. So qualifying um, life events are things like, um, uh, sorry, like getting married, losing your insurance because you um, moved to a different job, things like that. Uh, but then there are also other criteria um, that you can meet, um, like um, you could be low income. So, um, for a single person earning like less than 20,000, um, you could also, um, be a member of a, a federally recognized, um, American Indian or Alaska native tribe. So there are things like that. Um, and if you don't meet any of those, but you still don't have insurance, it's also still worth checking to see if you qualify for Medicaid in your state. Um, and Medicaid does not have open special enrollment periods. It is all year round. Um, and so you, you can always go and check to see if you're eligible. Great. And our next question is from Hile, uh, who wants to know if Medicaid can deny coverage to a person without assets, but who needs 24-7 medical care. To answer that question, welcome Diane from Just Care and Social Security Works. Okay, so here we go. Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, the answer is likely yes, um, but it's it's more complicated. Every state has different eligibility rules for Medicaid. And also some states have um, much more comprehensive Medicaid benefits than others. So let's start start first with eligibility under um, New York state law, for example. Uh, if your um, income is up to 138% of the federal poverty level, you would qualify for Medicaid. But um, if your income is above 138% of the federal poverty level, and you have healthcare spending, qualified medical expenditures out for which you pay out of pocket, you can technically spend down to Medicaid by paying the extra money that keeps you from qualifying for qualified medical expenses. Not all states have that. So uh, depending upon where you live, that could be the case. All states now do cover home care. Most don't cover 24-hour, seven-day-a-week home care, 
but most do cover home care services. So then the question becomes, if you are eligible in your state for Medicaid, um, are you in a state that covers home care and or 24-hour home care? And then even if the state does cover that, there is a shortage of care workers in the country, a major, major shortage. So a lot of states have wait lists and um, it can take a while before you would qualify or be able to get your home care benefits. And they may be as little as eight hours a day and not 24 hours a day, again, depending upon where you live and what your specific health care needs are and whether the home care, Medicaid's home care uh, agencies think that you're qualified for it. Our next question is from Lori, who wants to know, when will insurance cover homeopathic medicine? Zoid? Yeah, so I know um, it was um, a few weeks ago, I believe I talked about pharmacy benefit managers and kind of how that works in terms of what um, insurance will cover. Um, but even before then, in general, medications have to be FDA approved. Obviously, there are some exceptions, like receiving, we're seeing with, with COVID, you know, some kind of... A, you know, approved for emergency use and insurance companies will cover that. But in general, medications will have to be FDA approved um, as a prescription medication. And as far as I know, there aren't any homeopathic medicines that that are. They're treated differently by the FDA, typically as like supplements. Um, there might be some naturopathic medications that, that are FDA approved or could be. Um, so it's possible some insurance covered covers those, but in general, it needs to get FDA approval first. And Diane for Medicare? And again, um, it's pretty much the same with Medicare. Medicare does not cover alternative medicines. Um, homeopathic care is just not covered by the general Medicare benefit. Uh, it may be the case that some Medicare Advantage plans, the corporate health insurance plans that offer Medicare benefits, could offer homeopathic care as an additional benefit. Generally, those additional benefits are so limited that it would not be worth signing up for a plan just for that purpose. And our next question is from Randy, who wants to know, will Social Security and Medicare be saved? Uh, so Diane, do you want to talk about how Social Security and Medicare are funded and what's going on there? Sure. So um, let's start with exactly that. Uh, both Medicare and Social Security are what are called earned benefits because we all pay into those programs throughout our working lives. A uh, little portion of our paycheck goes towards the Social Security Trust Fund and towards the Medicare Trust Fund. Um, and um, that is what keeps those two funds delivering benefits to people um, over, over time. Now, over the years, these trust funds for Social Security and Medicare have been bigger and smaller and continue to sort of change their size and um, the date by which they will no longer be able to deliver full benefits. But they've always been able to deliver full benefits to date, and there's every reason to believe they will into the future. So let me talk about that for a second. Um, right now, Social Security has enough funds to cover full benefits through 2035. So that's a ways away. That's 12 years away. Um, and there's already action in Congress uh, among the Democrats, but very a very 
overwhelming majority of the Democrats to strengthen Social Security by um, lifting the cap on contributions so that everybody pays in to Social Security throughout the course of the year. Right now, millionaires and billionaires only pay in for the first couple of months of the year, and everybody else pays in for the entire year. Um, The cap is about 160,000 bucks. Most people don't make that much. Um, So if we lifted that cap, we could strengthen Social Security for decades more, and that's what uh, we're working on doing in Congress right now. On the Medicare side, uh, if you noticed, uh, the president's budget uh, just released actually focuses on strengthening the Medicare trust fund for another generation, for another 25 years. And the plan for doing that, again, is to uh, increase Medicare contributions um, from people who are millionaires and billionaires uh, to help bolster the uh, Medicare trust fund, and also to do more work uh, negotiating prescription drug prices. Right now, Medicare spends so much on prescription drugs. Uh, with more drug price negotiation, that would come down and there would be more money in the trust fund uh, for um, for a longer period of time. So that's what's uh, in the future. Uh, people should also recognize that even if we were to hit 2020 eight for Medicare and 2035 for Social Security without any bolstering, um, they, would, they would both still be paying out benefits, just not 100% of benefits. I don't think we're going to get to that place. I think Congress is focused on getting those benefits paid in full, but um, we do have um, plans in place for both Social Security and Medicare to keep them going for a long time coming. Thanks, Diane. And Zoid, we've talked um, in previous shows about the end of the public health emergency. Can you tell us what does that mean and what does that mean for people who get their health insurance through Medicaid? Yeah, so um, due to the public health emergency, um, essentially the federal government made a deal with states. You know, we'll, we'll give you extra money if you don't redetermine people off of Medicaid during this pandemic. And redeterminations typically under Medicaid happen every year. So you are eligible for Medicaid. And then a year later, they check all of your information again to see if you're still eligible. Um, and if so, they continue your coverage for another year or you might be, um, removed from the program. Um, So because of this, these redeterminations have not been happening for anyone during the public health emergency. Recently, Congress made it so instead of this, you know, what they're calling Medicaid unwinding, which means starting those redeterminations again, um, instead of that being tied to the end of the public health emergency, it now has a set date. So that is going to start happening the process itself is going to start in, I believe, on April 1st, and then it'll be a few months before we actually see people starting to lose their Medicaid coverage, and it will depend on the state and the timelines the state set up. Um, so what this means for folks who are on Medicaid right now, regardless of why you're on Medicaid, regardless of when you got it, is you need to make sure that Medicaid has the right information for you. You need to make sure your address, your contact information, and your income is all up to date. Um, that way, um, they can reach you if there are any issues, if they need more information from you. And also they can see if your income has been updated recently and it still is within, um, you know, the eligibility, then you can continue on with Medicaid. Um, 
Whereas if your income has perhaps gone up, if you've maybe been able to find a job since the start of the pandemic, um, this is a situation I'm in. I've been on Medicaid essentially since the start of the pandemic, um, even though my income has gone up. And so I've, you know, made sure that Medicaid has all that information um, so that, you know, hopefully that process will go smoothly. It'll depend on the state. Um, but um, make sure all your information is up to date is the, the key thing. Thanks, Zoid. And uh, next question is from Suzanne, who says that I was in the hospital for a week and the government called it unnecessary and wants me to pay. Uh, Diane, do you have any thoughts for Suzanne? Yeah, well, I'll start and then I know our guest will have some more thoughts, but I'll steal from him for the moment and say that um, one thing you might want to do is um, is contact the hospital about your bill. Now, everything turns on the insurance you have um, and um, how that is working, what state you live in, perhaps, depending upon the insurance you have, how old you are, if you have Medicare, um, your income, if you have Medicaid. So um, without knowing all of those things, it's hard to give you a definitive answer. But what I can say for sure is that if you have Medicare, um, then if the hospital took you for the service, uh, you are not liable for the cost of the hospital care unless you knowingly waived your right to coverage and um, signed something saying that you had done so. And I'm assuming you didn't if um, you've just gotten this this notice. Um, it, let me turn it over then to Zoid for any other thoughts before we turn it over to Jerry. Um, yeah, I think actually let's go ahead and turn it over to Jerry because I know he has a lot to say about a similar <laughs> topic. And so now I'm excited to introduce our special guest for today's show, Jerry Ashton, the co-founder of the nonprofit RIP Medical Debt and author of N Medical Debt, Curing America's 100 Trillion uh, Unpayable uh, Healthcare Debt. And he's going to be talking about how you can fight uh, medical debts. This, of course, is his excellent book. Jerry, so uh, back to Suzanne's question. Uh, she's sort of at the start of the process where uh, they're saying they're not going to uh, cover this hospital bill. Uh, what would you suggest? Well, let's start at the beginning <clears throat> so that people have a context of whether or not what I'm saying might ring true or not. I've been a bill collector for 40 years. They call them bill collectors. It's accounts receivable controls or management. It's much nicer than that. And in that period of time, my job was to get money that was standing out there because someone didn't pay. Uh, then I had a change of mind and I decided to look at things, to rethink things, look at them through the eyes of the debtor. And I ended up starting a charity and co-starting a charity called RIP Medical Debt, RIPmedicaldebt.org. What do they do? They go out with donations and they go to the debt market where your debt and my medical debt is sold like ham hocks and they'll buy that debt for a penny on the dollar. We do that. We go out to the medical uh, world. We buy that debt for a penny on the dollar. And the difference is rather than um, chasing it down and causing you to make money, we forgive that debt. So I want you to know that when I'm talking to your listeners and viewers, uh, I've been on both ends of the scale. I'm here to help relieve that debt, and I'm also here to teach you how to not, not get into it. So going specifically to the lady, uh, is she already in debt? Is that the story? 
well, it sounds like um, Suzanne says the government is is refusing to pay for the hospitalization. So by that, uh, we're assuming she has Medicare or Social Security, Medicare or Medicaid or some form of government health insurance, and they um, so far they're saying they won't pay for the hospitalization. Hmm. Well, let me recommend one of the people you uh, <clears throat> had on your show, <laughs> good friend of mine. Uh, Marshall Allen wrote a book called Never Pay the First Bill. <clears throat> so that's number one, education. Number two, if there's insurance involved, let me recommend my good friend, Wendell Potter, because he'll tell you as an executive in that industry what criminals and crooks they are and what you need to do to protect yourselves from them. I hope I'm not offending any who are listening. And uh, the third thing is, if she's in some form of a government thing, we would, I would have to know as a bill collector, what do you mean? Are you disabled? Are you a military person who wandered into a hospital and then your your wound or illness wasn't covered because of something the VA determines? So there's not enough information for there. So number one, get educated. Number two, find an advocate. No matter what your problem is, there's somebody who knows that problem before you. And I don't know where you search them out or Google them. Go to the hospital. Tell them to give you a list of the people in your in your situation and how it is that that uh, they can help you get out of this problem. Thanks. Uh, so let's let's talk more about your book and why does America have so much medical debt? Uh, the, the newest book is called <laughs> COVID <laughs> Recovery Edition. We haven't recovered yet, but imagine how many medical bills were created for that particular person, purpose. So with uh, with us being former bill collectors and then turning into debt forgivers, uh, we wrote this book to educate people and say, let's end it to begin with. See, right now, most of us are just talking about the symptoms. We're not talking about the disease. The disease is a broken system of profit-making. I'm not saying that as a flaming leftist bomb thrower. I'm saying follow the money. All the money that goes to the people between you and me and our health care are the pharma industries and the hospitals and the pharmacy benefit managers and the, you name them. So when we wrote this book, uh, there are three of us wrote it, Sherry Ashton, Robert Goff, and Craig Antico. Craig and Antico were in the collections industry. Robert Goff was a professional in healthcare and hospitals. So we knew we know what's going on. Get educated is the first thing. Seek allies. That's the second thing. So what motivated us? Uh, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know everybody else is. So I would say if you're not an activist, better be. So tell us more about RIP medical debt. Uh, so it, how how did you get started, and uh, what all are you doing today? Okay, here's my transition in the last nine years. I walked into Occupy Wall Street as a debt collector. I walked out of Occupy Wall Street as a debt forgiver. I then set about with my friend Craig Antico to char start a charity, RIP Medical Debt, which since we started it nine years ago has abolished over uh, $8 billion for over 5 million Americans. And we're just getting started. So I learned a lot from that, that from that experience. When I first started out, I couldn't, I didn't even know how to ask for money. 
to get a charity going. And nobody knew who I was. So it wasn't until we got enough awareness and we can thank John Oliver of last week tonight who featured our charity on his show. I think it was in 2016. He featured us. And from that point on, we never had to worry about money. So Mackenzie Phillips, Scott Mackenzie Scott, uh, you might know her name in the last uh, two years has donated over $80 million to us. We use that money to go to the debt market to buy your debt from that local hospital or from debt collectors and debt buyers to forgive. Well, having satisfied that and retiring because everybody's doing the work, I'm just the guy who started it. So I said, well, what am I going to do now? And I decided that I would start focusing on rethinking things. In particular, veteran medical debt. I don't know if you're aware that veterans owe medical debt. Now, isn't that interesting? We civilians, I didn't even know it. As a veteran, four years in the Navy as a Navy journalist, I never used the VA until I was in my 70s. And even then, not too much because my wife has insurance. We didn't need it. But when we started buying medical debt, we noticed that there were service people in there. How did this happen? It's because a veteran would go to a hospital with an illness the hospital would bill a VA, the, the VA would deny it because it didn't meet certain criteria. There's over $6 billion owed by veterans right now through the VA healthcare system. What is wrong with that when our warriors come back to find themselves burdened? If you're not an activist, you should be. So I started an organization called Let's Rethink This, Let's Rethink This.com, and a veteran-specific campaign called VeteranMissionPossible.com. And what we do there is we educate. I'm not a charity anymore. I'm a what they call a public benefit corporation. I'm just raising awareness. But first, you have to raise the awareness. If people aren't aware of you, they don't know about you, they can't do anything about you. So that's now leading into some interesting things because now I'm partnering with RIP Medical Debt in searching out medical debt for veterans and having RIP work with me and my organization. And we have a radio station, KPFK, where we have a, a station called Rethinking Heroes, a segment on Friday mornings. And we're raising awareness and we're going to give away a million dollars of the medical debt across the country in honor and as part of being a veteran. How's that for an exciting life? <laughs> <laughs> Diane, you Diane? had a question? Yes, Jerry. So um, what you do is just fantastic. Um, obviously needed, be, you know, just beyond the imagination needed so, so much by so many people. So the question is, if you're, if we have listeners here who are in medical debt, can they reach out to RIP debt for help or how does that work? Very simple. Just write, just go to the website, ripmedicaldebt.org because it's a charity. Uh, and there'll be a place where you can register yourself and your names. What I want you to understand is that RIP as a charity only buys debt in bulk, millions of dollars at a time. Uh, so any individual, we can't help them. We just impossible to do that. And compared to the chain of pain that people go through just to get into our world, first of all, you have to get sick, which is not a good thing to do in America. The second thing is you'll find out you're either underinsured or not insured or poorly insured. And then you'll find out that the insurance that you get, line one giveth and line 14 taketh away. So this impossible world, which is so broken, 
which needs to have change, where we change it from uh, segments of the population that each take your tax dollars, because most of this is paid for by tax dollars. They take your money to pay these people in the middle, and you're not getting the support that you need. So I hope I didn't go off topic there. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, do you have some tips or advice for people that are listening to us right now that a uh, bill has already gone to collections? What, what should yes. they do? Okay. You got sick. You went to the hospital. You got discharged. They sent bill number one, bill number two, bill number three. And eventually the hospital turns you over to a collection agency as uncollectible. They assign that account. It's not owned by the agency. They assign it, which means they can take it back anytime they want. But when they assign it to a collection agency, the agency is now working on a percentage, um, 15, 20, 25, 30, and more. So it motivates the agency to want to get that money from you, and the hospital doesn't have enough people to do the work. So they're happy to pay a percentage. When you get that very first letter, uh, uh, when you get the very first letter, dispute it. In fact, you can even start on heavier, earlier up the chain. The minute you're in the hospital, and this is where my good friend Marshall Allen comes in, get this book. <laughs> Never pay that bill. What you're going to do is you're questioning it. What about this? What, uh, how do I know? That's not my address. And there's so many things that you can bring up that they have to validate. So when it gets to the collection agency and you say, okay, I dispute this debt, they have to go back to the creditor, the hospital, or the doctor, and say, we need documentation. And then they come back to you. Now, if you're fully documented and you own the money and you don't have it, then it gets difficult because agencies can get aggressive. A polite word for, <laughs> for what work is done in this industry. Uh, they're professionals. They're hardworking people like you and me. They got bills to pay. They got medical bills too, but they need you to pay that money. So the first thing you do is say, look it, I don't have it. I'm never going to have it. Anybody who's who's seen my my paycheck or my situation would tell you the same thing. I'm going to ask you to go back to the creditor and simply write it off because I ain't paying it. Now, they'll do a research on you. They'll do an assets discovery. And that's only for really large bills. But at some point in time, collection agencies work to make money. And you don't make money chasing down accounts that can't pay. Now, the other thing, get advocates. Advocates, get some people uh, who are on your side, people from the same hospital, maybe people from the same town, people in national organizations that are more than happy to help you and work with you. This is what you need. You can't do this alone. So um, just be honest with the debt collector. If you can afford five bucks a month for a $10,000 bill, pay them the five bucks a month. I don't think it'll get that low, but at least... Whatever they dicker with you, don't commit to any amount of money that you won't pay or can't pay. So here's don't a follow-up. What's that? Here's a follow-up question. Um, yes. How do you decide which bills, which collection agencies you're going to buy the debt from? If people write you about a particular hospital um, and you see patterns, are you going to go after um, collection agencies that are buying debt from those hospitals? Or is there, are there ways to influence what you do? Great question. Collection agencies don't own the accounts, so therefore they can't sell them or write them off. The hospital sells these to debt buyers in bulk. <clears throat> the debt buyer goes to hospitals all over the country. So you're just, your hospital is just one of many that they're buying debt from. So, uh, you, 
basically you wait for the hospital to sell your debt so that when you're called by the new debt collector, that's when you start going through the gamut that I'm talking about. If we're lucky enough to have purchased that account, you'll hear from us with a nice yellow envelope that says debt forgiven, because that's what we do. Well, thank you so much, Jerry. And again, everybody should get his book, End Medical Debt, uh, which has lots more on how we got here and where we need to go to end medical debt. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Let me thank you, too, for such important work that you do. And for everyone uh, uh, watching and listening at home, make sure to call and text in your health insurance and healthcare questions, and we will answer them in future episodes. This is Care Talk.